Before we leave this introductory paragraph, which forms the greeting of Paul's letter to the Romans, I think it would be beneficial for us to pause and to deal with an issue that is going to have massive implications for how we understand the rest of this book, and indeed will have massive implications for our approach to the whole of life. Almost incidentally, and I use the word incidentally lightly because I don't think it's wise to take anything Paul says as incidental, but almost incidentally, Paul uses the word twice in two verses, once in verse 6 and once in verse 7, to describe the Christians of Rome and by extension to describe Christians everywhere. He says in verse 6, following his extended summary of the gospel, which he provided in verses 2 through 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And then in verse 7, when Paul resumes this standard epistolary greeting, he says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God, and there's that word again, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice that repetition of the word called. Paul wants the Christians in Rome to know something about themselves from the very outset of this letter. He wants them to know that they are among those who literally are the called of Christ Jesus. So what does it mean to be called, and why is Paul so insistent that they, and by extension, we, would know ourselves in light of this truth? Well, there is a worldview that is underlying all of Paul's thought, which in turn forms the foundation for the entire Bible. It is a worldview that is antithetical, it's exactly opposite of the prevailing worldview of our culture, and sadly, it is not in alignment with the prevailing worldview in many of our churches. It is a worldview, by worldview I mean a way of viewing and interpreting reality that begins with God and then proceeds, and only then, proceeds towards man, rather than beginning with man and proceeding then towards God. This worldview is so radically different from the way that we, by nature, view reality that most people miss it when they read the scriptures because they read the Bible from the preconception that it is all about them. It's not. The Bible is all about God. Neither is the gospel all about us. Paul is clear in verse 1 that this is not the gospel of man or for man. It is the gospel of God. If people pick up on this fact that the Bible speaks from a different perspective than their own, by nature they either twist it to fit their own view or they are repulsed by it, or they ignore it altogether. So radically man-centered are we by our natural orientation. A few weeks ago in Rance's discipleship class on the holiness of God, we were attempting to define holiness. What does holiness mean? What does it mean that God is holy? And we took a few stabs at it, and after a while, we decided that holiness is, in a sense, indefinable by mere words. It must be defined by God's own nature. In other words, you can't take some external standard of holiness, line God up with it, and see whether he conforms or not to that standard, and by that definition determine whether or not God is, in fact, holy. There is no standard higher or more eternal than God. Therefore, you cannot evaluate God by an external standard and say God is holy because he's like this. What we are left with then is something of a circular argument. Philosophers will call it a tautology. God is holy because holiness is God. 
Holiness, in other words, is self-defined. Holiness is whatever conforms to God's character. You are only as holy as your thoughts, actions, will, and inclinations are in alignment with God's thoughts, actions, will, and inclinations. God cannot act in a way that is unholy because holiness is defined as whatever God does. The same is true, by the way, for all of God's attributes. God cannot act in a way that is unloving because God is love. There is no external standard of love by which you may compare God and say God is loving because he's like this. Same thing is true of righteousness. God cannot act unrighteously because God is righteousness. Righteousness is defined as however God acts. There is no righteous moral standard outside of or higher or before God by which he may be judged. You get the sense of the biblical worldview that I'm trying to convey here? The biblical worldview affirms the God-centeredness of God. Indeed, it delights, it glories in God's God-centeredness. The Bible celebrates the Godness of God. And no book draws out the implications of God's Godness as it applies to the issues of salvation and judgment more than Paul's letter to the Romans. But the church has not always recognized this, which is why the Bible, and Romans in particular, has so often been misunderstood. When when the church imports a man-centered worldview into a God-centered book, confusion abounds. And that is exactly what has happened at times throughout the history of the church. The book of Romans proclaims one thing about how God saves sinners, and a segment of the church, often a dominant segment of the church, recoils and says, no, God can't do it like that. That's not right. And what they mean is, that's not the way I would do it if I were God. But what have they done? They've attempted to climb up into heaven to drag God off of his throne and to make him conform to a standard of right and wrong, justice and injustice that they deem best. It's happened over and over and over again. In the early years of the 5th century, a controversy arose in the early church between a British monk by the name of Pelagius and a North African bishop by the name of Augustine. Pelagius' theology started with man and worked from there toward God. Mike asked me what picture of Pelagius he should find, and I said, find the ugliest one there is. Consequently, Pelagius held that man was not born in a condition of sin, and therefore salvation could be merited through man's obedience, particularly as he simply walked in the steps of Christ, just followed Jesus' example and he'd be saved because God would look upon him, deem him to be righteous, and accept him. Augustine responded vehemently to Pelagius' claims, and he insisted that man was born in a state of moral corruption that was so devastating that man could not take the first step toward God apart from divine grace, a grace which God gives sovereignly to whomever he chose to redeem through the saving work of Christ. So Augustine's theology began with God and proceeded from there towards man. The church sided with Augustine, and Augustinianism became the declared orthodoxy of the early church, while Pelagianism was declared heresy. But while Pelagianism was condemned at the Council of Carthage in 418 and the Council of Ephesus in 431, various forms of what is known as semi-Pelagianism began to take root and became the dominant view of the church for centuries. This was, in fact, one of the primary battlegrounds of the Reformation. The medieval church, the Catholic church, taught that God's grace was essential for salvation, for apart from his grace, no sinner would be saved. But they also taught that it was man's will which made the determinative move in salvation. In the case of the Roman Catholic Church, this determinative move was by faith, good works, and fastidious observance of the sacraments. 
In other words, the Catholic Church believed in a salvation by grace, but not in a salvation as Augustine had believed, by grace alone. Well, in the 16th century, an Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther strenuously objected. In a written debate with the Catholic humanist Erasmus of Rotterdam, who had published a treatise against Luther's Augustinian view of the bondage of the will, Luther praised Erasmus for getting straight to the point of contention between him and the Catholic Church and not bothering with peripheral issues like the authority of the Pope or the existence of purgatory or the propriety of indulgences. You alone, wrote Luther, have attacked the real thing. That is the essential issue. You alone have seen the hinge on which everything turns. turns. You alone have aimed for the vital spot. That hinge, that vital spot as Luther saw it, was whether God or man is the determinative cause for salvation. When you strip away everything else, what is it that saves? Is it God's choice of me or is it my choice of God? For Erasmus, Luther's defense of Augustinian predestination was immoral and unjust, and he wrote so. Luther responded by declaring that it is just because God does it. You see how he argued? He says to Erasmus, essentially, you can't take some external standard of justice, put God in the defendant's box, and say, you can do it this way, but not that way. Justice is whatever God does. Timothy George summarized the debate between Erasmus and Luther as follows. Let God be good, cried Erasmus the moralist. Let God be God, replied Luther the theologian. Luther did much to recover this Augustinian approach to the scriptures and salvation, but it was John Calvin who systematized it and worked out its implications for all of salvation and indeed for all of life. And Calvin wrote a book called The Institutes of the Christian Religion, which became the preeminent theology text of the Protestant church. And in his institutes, this God-centered worldview is expanded and applied across the board to all of church and to all of life. And because of this book's enduring popularity, this particular approach to salvation and to the scriptures and to theology and to all of life became known as Calvinism. But as I've tried ever so briefly to show, Calvinism is nothing other than applied Augustinianism. In fact, it's nothing other than Paulinism. And in fact, it's nothing other than New Testament Christianity, which begins with God and not with man. I am a Calvinist. Not because I think that we should form our own little Geneva hair and wear funny hats and baptize infants and burn heretics, right? That's not what I'm advocating. I'm a Calvinist because I think Calvin got Paul right. I think Calvin was right when he looked at the scriptures and he saw God as the center of reality, a God who is holy and just and righteous and good, a God who is held to no standard other than that of his own character and is judged by no one other than himself. That's the view of God that Paul had. It's a view exemplified in Paul's triumphant declaration at the end of the theological portion of Romans. At the end of 11 chapters of expounding the biblical doctrine of salvation, Paul says this, Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Or, watch this, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. And to him belong the glory forever. Amen. From the very outset of his letter, 
Paul wants the Roman Christians to share his God-saturated worldview. He wants them to know that they are included in the saving benefits of Christ that he is getting ready to lay forth for them in these, in these preceding chapters of Romans through no working of their own, but rather because they were called to belong to Jesus Christ. Because they, in distinction from all of the other citizens of Rome, are those who have been loved by God and called to be his saints. Because Paul knows that if they don't understand this, they won't understand the rest of his letter and they'll never understand God. And neither will we. But there is a reason why I want to share with you this God-centered view of reality and why I want you to adopt this God-centered view of reality that goes beyond merely understanding the argument of Romans, as important as that may be. It's because I want you to experience that kind of joy. Has your heart ever erupted like this? What, what emotion do you think Paul is feeling such that he becomes so overwhelmed that this comes forth after 11 chapters of theology? I think that's joy. And I want that. And I want that for you. I think Paul, having meditated upon the glories of God's sovereign grace for 11 chapters, can't contain his happiness anymore. His happiness in God being God. His happiness in God's godness being directed toward him, the chief of sinners, in mercy purchased by Christ. In other words, I think Paul felt himself personally, individually, particularly loved by the God of the universe. And I think Paul wanted the Romans to experience that same joy, which is not why he not only emphasizes that they were called by God, but that they are loved by God. Verse 7. See, I I think that there is a direct correlation between a view of salvation that emphasizes the godness of God and our joy in that godness being directed toward us in mercy. We were made to rejoice in the glory of God. We were made to enjoy God's being glorious. Therefore, we experience our highest joy when God demonstrates his highest glory. And this is intrinsic to our being created in the image of God. And even in our fallen, even in our corrupted natures, that sin does not completely mask the joy that we feel at the revelation of God's glory. Think about it. One of the ways that God manifests his glory to the world is in creation, right? Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. So God's glory is shining forth in the heavens. So ask yourself a question, which brings you more joy? Standing in downtown Springfield where the nighttime sky is some sort of hazy, orangish glare. Or standing up on a mountain in Colorado away from all light pollution where the night sky is ablaze with stars that you feel like if your arm were just a little bit longer, you could touch. Which one makes you happier? Which one makes you feel deeper levels of joy? Or which brings you more joy, standing on the edge of a cow pond in the middle of a pasture or standing on the rocky cliffs of Northern California, listening to the sound of crashing waves and overlooking the vast, limitless expanse of the Pacific Ocean? The greater the glory, the greater our joy. 
Or which brings you more joy? Standing on the edge of a rock quarry, overlooking a pit which men have carved out of the side of a hillside in order to make gravel, or standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon overlooking miles of, of multicolored sandstone which has been carved by the finger of God. The greater the glory, the greater our joy. Therefore, my contention is that the theology that affords God the greatest glory is the theology which is most capable of bringing us the deepest and most lasting joy. And with regard to the theology of salvation, this would be the view that glorifies God as the determinative actor in our salvation rather than man. The God-centered view of salvation that is, that is presented in Romans is the Grand Canyon as compared with the rock quarry of Pelagian man-centered theology that is so often preached in churches. Paul wants the Romans to see the glory of what God has done. And I want us to see it, and I want us to stand in awe of what God has done to save us. I want, I want us to know that we have been loved by God and that we have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. And I want us to know and feel what Paul knew and felt in those two terms. Namely, that all of the godness of God has been directed towards you personally, individually, in mercy and sovereign love from all eternity. From the time when God chose you individually and in love predestined you to be his child to the time when Christ died for you personally and individually upon the cross so that you would not perish in your sins, to the moment when the Holy Spirit called you effectually and summonly and, and sovereignly to new life and repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. There is abundant joy to be found in the theology of Romans, but not if you deny or disregard its radically God-centered orientation. Hence, this sermon. When we were putting the preaching outline together, I asked the uh, elders if I could have another. We had already established the outline. We already had people preaching in different weeks. And I said, can, can I have one more week? One more week on this paragraph because there's something here that I want to establish. I didn't have to twist their arms too bad. It, we, we, got, we got there. So this morning, I want to lay a soteriological foundation for our study of Romans. Now, if you've never seen that word before, I don't blame you. It simply means a theology of salvation. Soteria is the Greek word for salvation. So when I say I want to explore the Pauline soteriology, I'm not trying to impress you. I'm trying to say Paul's doctrine of salvation. Before I do, however, let me lay some ground rules for what we're going to do in the remainder of our time together. I have three, three ground rules. Number one, each of these pillars I'm going to discuss at length in a different sermon. So I'm going to just give a brief overview of them. We're going to spend no more than five minutes on each of these five pillars. Ground rule number two, all five of these pillars can be established in the book of Romans, so we're not going to look outside of Romans this morning. In future sermons, I may take what Paul says and compare it to 1 Corinthians or compare it to something Jesus says. Today, we're just going to be in Romans, going to confine ourselves to this letter. Thirdly, these pillars will be familiar to most of you, particularly, particularly if you've taken a catechism class before, but there may be some of you for whom these are completely new. So I want you to know I'm not asking you to feel any particular way about them this morning. In fact, if you've never heard this before, I'm willing to bet that you'll feel rather unsettled by it. It's a hard thing to give up control of our eternal destiny. You will feel what you will feel this morning. I'm simply asking you to consider if this is in fact what Paul teaches I can help you feel the way God wants you to feel later on 
by helping you think through some of these issues on a deeper level. But my aim this morning is just the declaration of the truth in order to lay a foundation for future study. So with that in mind, I want to lay down five pillars of Paul's doctrine of salvation, which will form the foundation for our study of Romans. I want you to know what Paul means when at the very beginning of his letter he says, you have been loved by God and you have been called to be his saints. We begin with the gracious election of God. We're going to begin with God. Paul's doctrine of salvation begins where the rest of his theology begins. It's radically God-centered. Do you remember his exclamation at the end of Romans chapter 11, at the end of 11 chapters of meditating upon the saving work of God? He said these words, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. So salvation begins with God and not with man. The way Paul expresses this is by teaching that our salvation does not depend upon anything in us, but rather it finds its source in the free, gracious, and unconditional election of God before the foundation of the world. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 9. We're going to be flipping through Romans this morning, so just keep your fingers nimble and your Bible open. Romans chapter 9. Paul is responding to a charge that God's promise to Israel must have failed because by and large, Israel has rejected the Messiah whom God sent to her. God promised that Israel would be saved. Israel's rejected Christ. They're not saved. Surely the word of God has failed. To which Paul responds that the word of God has not failed. Rather, the fact that some in Israel are saved and others in Israel are lost is perfectly in accord with the way God has always interacted with Israel. And Paul proves this by pointing to God's choice of Isaac instead of Ishmael and God's choice of Jacob instead of Esau. Even though both Ishmael and Esau were sons of Isaac, and in fact, Esau was the firstborn. Then Paul draws those Old Testament examples together and forms a general principle in verses 10 to 13. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Don't shy away from what Paul's saying. Stare it down this morning. Jacob was chosen and loved not because of anything in him, but because of something in God. Namely, God's purpose of election. Take that phrase and apply it to yourself. You are here this morning believing in Christ, if in fact you do believe in Christ, in order that God's purpose of election might stand, not because of you who works, but because of him who calls. Paul returns to the theme two chapters later when responding to the question of whether Israel's rejection of Christ means that God has rejected them as his people. Again, Paul says, no. For God has always had a chosen people within the nation of Israel. And he points back to the time of Elijah when there were 7,000 men who had not bowed the knee to Baal. And Paul infers from that Old Testament example another general principle, a principle that is true today. Verse 5 of chapter 11. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. 
So according to Paul, the elect were chosen according to grace, not according to their own works, not according to their own merit. In other words, salvation does not work like so many people think it works today, that God before time began, looked down through the corridors of time, he, he sort of surveyed the populace, saw those who would believe, and he selected those who would believe on the basis of their foreseen faith. No, says Paul, it wasn't about anything in them, it was about something in God. It was that God's purpose of election might stand. So too, if you have believed on Christ, you have believed because God chose you freely and unconditionally from all eternity and called you to belong to Jesus Christ. In the final analysis, you owe your salvation not to your choice of God, but to God's choice of you. That's the first pillar. Furthermore, it must be so. Because if what Paul says in the book of Romans is true about the sinful condition of man, had God not chosen you, you never would have chosen him. Now let me run through a brief survey of statements that Paul makes in Romans about the sinful nature of all mankind. Romans chapter 3 is where we'll begin. Romans 3.10. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. No one understands and no one seeks for God. So if God's looking down the corridor of time and he's looking for folks who are seeking for him, he's not going to find any. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 6.20 For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Romans 7.18 For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Romans 8, 7. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul has a pretty dismal view of mankind. Another way of saying that is that Paul has a very realistic view of mankind. All mankind has been enslaved to sin since the fall of Adam. And this refers not only to guilt, but to corruption. Sin has infected our entire beings, our intellects, our wills, our bodies, our souls. Now, this does not mean that man is as bad as he could possibly be. We still retain some of the vestiges of that image of God with which God endued us in creation. We're like shattered mirrors of God's glory. We still provide some reflection, but that reflection is radically distorted. Rather, What Paul means is that no part of us has been unaffected or uncorrupted. We are, in the words of the Westminster Confession, dead in sin and wholly defiled in all parts and faculties of the soul and body. We are dirty all over, but we're not dirt. But our sin has enslaved us such that we cannot love God. We cannot choose God. We cannot trust God. We cannot enjoy God. We have been rendered just like Adam and Eve in the aftermath of their fall. Our nature is to hide from God in shame and fear and hatred. 
We are in our innermost beings hostile to God such that we cannot submit to his rule over our lives. Therefore, if we are to be saved, that salvation must come from outside of us. If it were up to us in any way, we would be utterly without hope. This is why the conception of salvation as a choice which God lays before our free wills is an illusion. Our wills are not free to choose God until God sets them free. They are in bondage to self and to sin. So, there are two problems that need to be solved if any man is to be saved. And we can't lift a finger to solve either one of them. Problem number one is we are guilty under God's law, which says that sinners who reject his un his sovereignty and glory, his uncreated sovereignty and glory in favor of created things deserve the penalty of hell. Problem number two is that our natures are so corrupt that we don't desire God's glory. We don't desire God. So we have two problems that need to be solved if we're going to be saved and we can't solve them. Paul, speaking of the Gentiles who do not have the law written, yet says, Romans 1.32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. The guilty cannot secure their own pardon. Second, we have the problem of our enslaving corruption, which prevents the possibility of our coming to God on our own should he even offer a pardon. So if God is going to save us, he needs to provide for the removal of our guilt and he must provide for the remedy of our sin nature. The next two pillars address those two problems. The first God has done in Christ who died upon the cross as an actual atoning sacrifice for sinners. Now what do I mean by the word actual? I mean it in its technical sense as the opposite of hypothetical. A hypothetical atonement is what many believe Jesus accomplished on the cross. They believe that Jesus died to make the salvation of sinners possible, provided they repent and believe. But that is not the way Paul envisions the death of Christ. Paul envisions Christ's death not as making salvation possible for a hypothetical group of people, he envisions salvation as Christ dying to achieve salvation for an actual group of people. There's no such thing as a hypothetical substitute. Either he died in your place at the cross, or he didn't. Greg Forster points out, hypothetical is not even a word that can be applied to an omniscient God. God can't think hypothetically. He says, quote, when Jesus climbs up on the cross, he knows full well who will be saved and who won't. How can we say that he sacrifices himself on the assumption of a hypothesis which he knows to be false or on a condition which he knows is not met? No, when Christ died on the cross, he did not die for a hypothetical group of people. He died for an actual group of people, those whom God had chosen from salvation from eternity for salvation. And when Jesus died, Jesus actually saved them. He became their substitute in the judgment of God. God imputed their sins to Jesus and poured out his wrath upon Jesus for the sins which they deserved. Jesus' death in their place as their substitute actually accomplished their atonement. And if you don't believe that, let me ask you a question. Are there people suffering for their sins in hell? Answer is, yes. Did Christ die for them? And if so, for what are they being punished? Either Christ's death atones or it doesn't atone. And Paul views it as a full and rich and actual atonement. Listen to the definite language of actuality with which Paul speaks 
of the atonement in Romans 5, verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So when does Paul say we were reconciled to God? When we were... I've got all day. We were reconciled to God while we were enemies. We were reconciled to God not when we believed, but when we were enemies. We were reconciled at Christ's death on the cross. That statement demands an actual, definite, particular atonement. An actual substitution. In the mind of God, not in our experience, but in the mind of God, we were reconciled to him when his son, our substitute, took our place on the cross in the judgment of God, paid the penalty of our sin, and removed the enmity which God had toward us. When that debt was paid, we were free. But we had not yet entered into the experience of that freedom. We needed that freedom to be applied to us personally and individually. It would be like, not exactly like, because all metaphors fall short when we're dealing with the work of God, but it would be like a rich man walking into the bank and paying off your mortgage. At the moment that the money exchanges hands, your mortgage is paid, your debt is cleared. But you don't know it yet. In your experience, you are still living under the bondage of debt, and you will remain under the bondage of debt until someone comes to tell you the good news that your debt has been paid. Furthermore, even if someone tells you the good news that your debt has been paid, you will remain under the bondage of debt until you believe that good news to be true. But what if your nature is so hard and so incredulous and so cynical that no matter how many times the rich man comes to you and informs you that he has paid off your debt, you regard this as too good to be true, you don't believe him, you throw him out of your house that he has paid for, by the way, you refuse to open the door, and you continue to send your mortgage payment into the bank month by month as if it had never been paid off. How would you ever enter into the freedom which the rich man has purchased for you? That is similar to the way that we stand before we are called by the Holy Spirit. Because of the fall, our natures are enslaved to sin. We are enslaved to unbelief. We distrust God. Our flesh is in a state of hostility towards God. We are dead in our sin and in our unbelief. And unless God liberates us, the call of Christ will be about as effective as standing in the midst of a cemetery and pleading with the corpses there to arise and follow you. You cannot lead the dead out of the tombs unless you first give them life. You cannot lead the slaves out of bondage unless you first give them freedom. That's why when God calls his elect to salvation, that call is not passive. It's not a passive invitation. It's an active summons. It is a life-giving call that creates what it commands. Therefore, it is always effective, and it never fails. Paul gives us an insight into this in Romans chapter 8 and verse 30 where he writes that those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this is, this is question and answer time again. Whom does God call, according to Paul? Those whom he predestined. What is the effect of this call? They are justified and glorified. Paul envisions a 100% success rate between predestination and calling, between calling and justification, between justification and glorification. 
the only way this will result in a 100% success rate is if that call that, that, that relates predestination to justification actually brings forth and causes the faith for which it calls. And that's exactly what it does. The call of God, which comes in and through the general call of the gospel, awakens the sinner, calls him to be, causes him to be born again, and brings him to repentance and faith in Christ. It's not a violent act. It works in and through the natural means of preaching and thinking and considering the claims of the gospel. For some, this call is experienced as a dramatic event. For most, it is subtle and imperceptible, but it always accomplishes the conviction of sin and the awakening of faith and repentance. So this is how you can know if you are one of those who have been called to belong to Jesus Christ, verse 6, one of those who have been called to be saints, verse 7. It's not, as some have claimed, God saving you against your will. Rather, it is God offering you that which will make you eternally happy and liberating your will from the enslaving power of sin so that you are now for the first time able to embrace Christ and to enter into that life which will make you everlastingly joyful. Now, there are all manners of metaphors to think through and to utilize to help us think about the call of God, and we're going to save those for later. This morning, I just want you to note that the call of God is particular, it's given only to the elect, and it is effectual. It gives life and liberation, which produces faith and repentance. Finally, there is no thought in Paul's mind that God could ever fail to bring this salvation to completion. He doesn't lose any of them. Let me give you a few verses. Romans 6, 22 and 23. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 8.1, therefore there is now, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Romans 8.37, now in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When Christ Jesus died for you, he made atonement for every sin that you will ever commit, past, present, and future. When the Holy Spirit awakened you and indwelt you, he will not allow you to be enslaved to sin again. Therefore, God's eternal purpose in your salvation is as secure as the blood of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. You will be saved. This is what Paul means the Romans to understand and us to understand when he says that they are called to belong to Jesus Christ and when he says that they are loved by God and called to be saints. And I didn't want to speed over those two verses without dwelling on the theology that undergirds them because I want you to know the joy that Paul knew. Paul's view of salvation affords the greatest possible glory to God and the greater the glory, the greater the joy. So I ask you this question in closing. Do you know that kind of joy that erupts in praise for the godness of God? I know this raises some questions that I didn't address this morning, preeminent of which is why then didn't God choose everybody? And there are answers to that question. And we will deal with those in due time. This morning, I'd simply remind you that, by the way, Pelagius' view has the same problem. A view which says that man is the determining factor in salvation still runs into the same ethical issue of the, the goodness and the justice of God. 
But that's for another time. My aim this morning is simply to point out that Paul's purpose in writing this letter is to help the Romans feel loved by God and to feel it in the way in which he means it. And I want the same thing for you. I want you to know that if you are here this morning trusting in Christ, you were chosen individually by God before worlds began. He determined that he was going to set his saving love upon you. And in eternity past, he gave you to his son to redeem. In the fullness of time, Jesus Christ came forth, born of a virgin, born of Mary, lived a perfect life. He went to the cross, and when he went to the cross, he became a substitute for you personally, actually, effectively, your sins in the judgment of God were taken and were placed on Christ. They were imputed from you to Jesus and they were punished in full in Christ so that the reconciliation between you and God was affected because the means or the reason for that divide had been removed. Then God sent his Holy Spirit to awaken you out of spiritual death, to call you out of your lost estate. He, he reached down and he changed your nature from one that is hostile towards God to one that delights in God, from one that hates God to one who loves God, from one who is incapable of rejoicing in God's godness to one who delights in his godness and finds its deepest and greatest joy in the proclamation and the declaration of God's glory. And God will exert all of his sovereign, omnipotent power to sanctifying you and increasing and preserving your faith so that without fail, you will stand in the presence of his glory forever in deep and abundant joy. From eternity past to eternity future, all of God's sovereign, omnipotent, majestic power has been directed towards you in mercy through Christ. That's what it means to be loved by God and called to be his saint. Do you know the joy that arises from that infallible power? 